Hello and welcome to the podcast of Britain Christian Church. We exist to be a lighthouse of hope to our community in OKC. Now, here's Pastor Mike. That way you can follow along with all of the scripture that we're going to take a look at this morning. We're going to talk about a living hope. J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings wrote, Where there is life, there is hope. Hope is more than simply a nice thing to have as you try and navigate the twists and turns of the joys and disappointments of life. Hope is a basic, fundamental need for all people. No matter where you come from in the world today, hope is a basic, fundamental need. I don't know if high school kids are still studying Abraham Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs, which was developed in 1943. But any freshman Psych 101 student knows the theory, the the theory that Abraham Maslow came up with that describes the drive of human behavior. Maslow said there are five human needs that people must meet in order to feel fulfilled. They include physiological needs, safety, love and belonging, esteem, and self-actualization. The definition of a basic need is anything that is fundamentally connected to an individual's physical or mental well-being. Abraham Maslow believed that only when the more foundational, fundamental needs are met can we then move on and climb the ladder to meet those other higher needs, which lead to self-actualization. Well, I'm certainly not going to argue with Abraham Maslow, but I do think that there is a need that is inherent in every human individual. Every human being, no matter where in the world they find their home, there is a need that is inherent in each and every one of us. And this need is found at every level of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And yet at the same time, it transcends all of those needs that he lists. And that is the need for hope. For hope. Tolkien said, where there is life, there's hope. But Viktor Frankl, if he were here with us this morning, he would tell you that where there is hope, there is life. Viktor Frankl was an accomplished psychiatrist and neurologist when he, his wife Tilly, and both of his parents were arrested by the Nazis and taken into the Auschwitz concentration camp in 1942. His mother was immediately murdered. She was gassed in a Nazi gas chamber. Victor's wife and his father would also die in the concentration camp. And Victor survived those long, grueling days and nights in four different concentration camps before the Germans were defeated and all the prisoners were released and allowed to go back home. Victor to Vienna, Austria. And when he made his way back to Austria... He began to write a book, a book about all the things that he had learned while he was in those concentration camps, and he titled that book, Man's Search for Meaning. In his book, Viktor Frankl describes how hope for the future was the number one determining factor as to whether his fellow prisoners in those concentration camps would survive or not. Viktor Frankl saw so many men and women lose hope in those camps And they simply gave up. They stopped caring what would happen to them from that point forward. He wrote in his book, The Prisoner, who had lost his faith in the future, his future was doomed. 
With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual health and hold. He let himself to decline, and he became subject to mental and physical decay. And usually this happened quite suddenly. He had hope one moment, and the next moment, he lost his hope. It happened quite suddenly, most often in the form of a crisis. Well, there are many people today who have lost hope or who are losing hope. Study after study that was released in 2023 reported that the rates of anxiety and depression and hopelessness are on the rise in young and old alike all across America. They've lost hope that a better day is coming. A series of disappointments can unravel and exhaust our hope, and but we can't live without hope. We can't go on without hope. So the question that I want to lay before you this morning is this. Where can you and I find a hope that will endure the disappointments of life? That's going to be the focus of our study. In our study of 1 Peter, we've learned about those that Peter had in mind when he penned this letter. They were going through difficult days. They were strangers. They were exiles in the very society that they called their home. And even more difficult days were to come. And yet Peter wanted to remind them that they had a living hope, a vibrant living hope. Their hope was not in the power of the Roman Empire to improve their lives. Their hope was not in their own strength to turn lemons into lemonade. And their hope was not in the fact that Maybe one day, hopefully one day, they would have a new address, a more favorable city, a better village that they could live in and call home. No, no, no. Their hope was in none of these things. Their hope was a living hope that was rooted and grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's look at our scripture this morning found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his, what? In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, in verse 2, our study last week, Peter reminded the followers of Jesus who were scattered throughout five provinces of the Roman Empire that though they were suffering, they were going through such terrible times and their prospects for the future didn't look any better, they were not victims. They had been known by God from the foundation of the world. They were chose, the chosen people of God. They're in that situation. They were not forgotten by God, which oftentimes we think when we're going through trials, God, don't you know what I'm going through? Well, Peter wanted these people to know they were not forgotten by God. They had been set apart by the Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit was working in their lives to mold them and shape them through their trials into the image of Jesus Christ. They were not an afterthought in a random universe. 
No, they had been chosen for a purpose, and that specific purpose was to live their life in obedience to Jesus Christ. Right there where they were, as they made their way to their heavenly home, a home that was unlike anything this world had to offer. This is the reason Peter burst out in praise in verse 3 and says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Look what God has done. That's what Peter wants them to focus on. He doesn't want them to focus, not just yet, on their trial, their hardship. He wants them to focus on who God is and how God has acted in their life. Well, Peter goes on to describe what God has done in verses 3 through 5. Read it again with me. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept, it's guarded in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter tells us that God, in his great mercy, has done all of this for you and for me if we're followers of Jesus Christ. It reminds me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul wrote that God is rich in mercy. Read that with me in verse 4 and 5. Paul tells the people living in Ephesus, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Did you see that? God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins, in our transgressions. In another place, Paul says, while we were yet sinners, shaking our fist at God, doing what we wanted to do in life, Jesus Christ died for you. He died in your place so that you might have the opportunity to be reconciled, forgiven with God. He did it for you and me. I was talking to somebody this past week that was telling me that someone had said to them, you know, God helps those who help themselves. I've heard that line my whole life, and I bet you probably have as well. I have no idea where it comes from, but I do know this. It does not come from the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. If you ever say that line to somebody, don't say, well, you know what the Bible says, because it don't say it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches a totally different truth. Listen to this. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God helps those who cannot help themselves. The Bible teaches that God helps those who do not have what it takes to help themselves. God helps those that are bent over, run down, and are being crushed by the weight of the cares of life. God helps those who have gone too far, who have sinned too much, who've done too much, who know that they are not worthy of his forgiveness and have thrown in the towel. God helps people just like that. Amen. Through his great mercy, his great mercy, God is willing even to help you and me. And you know how he's done that? 
through the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. One night, a Pharisee, a man with a long list of degrees in theology, he sought Jesus out at night, outside of the public eye, in the shadows. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. It is an amazing admission if you know about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I mean, all throughout the Gospels, we read where the Pharisees, they were plotting against Jesus. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They were planning how they might kill Jesus. And eventually, they accomplished their goal. Jesus was crucified on a cross. And here is a Pharisee who went looking for Jesus. Albeit at night when nobody was seen, he went looking for Jesus and he acknowledged that Jesus was from God. Nobody could do the things that you do, Jesus, if he had not been sent from God. So Jesus replied to Nicodemus, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus you might have more degrees than a thermometer. You might be able to cite chapter and verse of the Torah. You may have people that follow you around night and day and call you rabbi or reverend, but let me tell you something, Nicodemus. Let me tell you, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Well, Nicodemus didn't understand, so Jesus made it crystal clear for him and for you and me this morning. Jesus said, Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone, anyone who believes, they may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Peter told those early followers, those elect exiles scattered throughout those provinces of the Roman Empire, that God had given them new birth into a living hope because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And let me tell you, if Jesus were standing before you and me this morning, he would tell you the same thing he told Nicodemus. If you want to walk with God, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Some of you here this morning, you were raised in Christian families. That's a wonderful gift. But let me tell you, you must be born again. Your mom and dad being a Christian is wonderful. But God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters. You must be born again. Or maybe you're like me and you didn't have the benefit of growing up in a Christian home. That's not an excuse I must be born again. You must be born again. Or maybe you grew up in a home where your parents were atheists or they were Jews or Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims. You, you must be born again. That's what God's Word teaches. For those who will trust in Jesus Christ, He will give you a new birth into a living hope. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that if anyone is in Christ, they are a brand new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, you are brand new. Isn't that good news? 
It's the best news. Our having a living hope is not based on crossing our fingers and hoping things get better. Not at all. Our hope is living. It is vibrant and alive because it is based on an event that happened 2,000 years ago when God raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know you can travel the world over today and you can visit the grave sites of the greatest religious leaders in the history of the world, but you cannot visit Jesus' gravesite because he is not there. He is alive. He is a living Savior. And because he is alive, those of you that are followers of Jesus, you have a living hope. Not only does the fact that Jesus lives give you and me a living hope, but it guarantees that if you trust in him, you have an inheritance that can never spoil, perish, or fade. Look at 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5 with me one more time. Verse 4, and into an inheritance. If you're a follower of Jesus, that inheritance is yours that can never perish spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Do do y'all know what an inheritance is? Raise your hand if you know what an inheritance is. An inheritance is something that, that it's not earned. It's something that is given to you. Let's say your mom and dad, they pass away and they want you to have something. And so they put in their will that upon their death, you receive this X as an inheritance. Some of us, we know about inheritance, but it's only hearsay. We've never received an inheritance. And the prospects of receiving something in the future, they they don't look any brighter than what we received in the past. But we have heard of people that received an inheritance when their mom or dad passed away. Well, here's the good news for all of you that are followers of Jesus. Whether you've received an inheritance or not, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have an inheritance waiting for you, and it is kept in heaven for you. And your inheritance, it can never perish, it can never spoil, it can never fade. That is beyond great news when you consider that most of the earthly inheritance that are passed down from one generation to the next, they are lost. They perish. I read an article this past week that Steve Hargreaves wrote. It was in CNN Business. His, his, title, his, his article is titled, Squandering the Family Fortune, Why Rich Families Are Losing Money. Listen to this. Nearly 60% of the time, a family's money is exhausted by the children of the person who created the wealth. Six out of ten times. According to Roy Williams, the president of Wealth Consultancy, the Williams Group. Now, let's go to the next generation. Roy says, in 90% of the cases, it's gone by the time the grandchildren die. Michael Klepper and Robert Gunther in their book, The Wealthy 100, tells the story of the Vanderbilt family. In the 1800s, 
the patriarch of the family, Cornelius Vanderbilt, he amassed a fortune, about $200 billion in today's money. And he did it through shipping and railroads. $200 billion. And when he died, his children inherited all of his wealth. Well, by the 1970s, as a matter of fact, there was a family reunion held for the heirs, the descendants of, of Cornelius Vanderbilt. And in the 1970s, 120 of his family members got together, and there was not one millionaire in the bunch. They had squandered their grandfather's money through lavish living. It, was, it perished. Their wealth perished. Peter says that the inheritance which is kept in heaven for all of those that are followers of Jesus, it will never perish, and neither can it spoil or fade. When Peter wrote this about your inheritance and mine, he wasn't thinking about rich folks on planet Earth, rich families that leave their money to those that come after them, but he was thinking about God's chosen people. He was thinking about the Israelites. You see, when God brought those Hebrew slaves out of Egypt, he told them that he would lead them to the promised land and he would give them the promised land. And when they arrived there, we read in Joshua 13 through 22 that God divided up the promised land according to those tribes, to the 12 tribes of Israel. The only tribe that did not receive an allotment of land was the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. And there was a reason for that. In Joshua 13, verse 33, we read, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance. As he promised them. They got the best inheritance of all. The promised land that God gave to his people, it was a fertile, undefiled land. A land that the Bible describes as flowing with milk and honey. But... When God gave his people that land, at some point, they began to turn away from him and to worship idols. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 7, this is what God said to his people. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. Listen to this. The very people that God had delivered from the clutches of Pharaoh's oppressive hand, the people that he had given such a rich and beautiful land, they chose to turn away from him, to turn to idols, and in so doing, they defiled God's good gift. Isn't that your story and mine? Isn't that the human predicament? We take God's good gifts, every single one of us that I'm looking at this morning, every single one of us have been given great gifts from God, wonderful gifts from God. And what we do is we lose sight that that's a gift and he's the giver. And we begin to make much more of this than God ever intended. And we take our eyes and our heart away from him. We turn away from the giver and we make the idols of wealth, our comfort, our relationships, sex, prominence. We turn them into our ultimate desire in all of life where we will sacrifice anything just to keep it whatever it is. We defile God's good gifts. 
That is why Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, I want you to read this with me out loud. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Jesus, like the Levites, in Jesus, we have an inheritance that can never be defiled because our risen king is undefilable. So if you're a follower of Jesus, your inheritance can never be lost, it can never perish, it can never be defiled, and it can never fade. The Greek word that's used there for fade, it was a Greek word that was used to describe flowers that would wither, that would lose their, their brilliant colors over the course of time. It's amazing how the treasures of this earth, they fade with time, isn't it? I mean, what was new and exciting at one point that really caused your heart to pump, you were so excited, just give it some time and the new will wear off and it will lose its luster. Remember that new car that you took such pride in that caused you to be so excited? Give it some time and it will become just another car. You remember the day when you would park in the far, far corner of Target or Walmart so nobody would ding it? Over the course of time, that special car of yours, why, it became an old car. And now you need a new car. It brought you so much excitement, so much joy, but it faded. That joy and that glory faded over time. And such is the nature of all of earth's treasures. All of them. All relationships. All things. All experiences. I mean, I've told you before, if you're a kid and your mom takes you to Frontier City, you thought you died and went to heaven. How fun is that place? Until your mama takes you to Six Flags. And then you'll never go back to Frontier City again. And heaven forbid that your parents ever take you to Disney World. But even Disney World grows old. Even Disney World loses its pizzazz. That's the way it is with this earth's treasures. That's why Jesus said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. We have a treasure, an inheritance in heaven that will never perish it will never spoil. It will never fade. And there's more to learn about this inheritance in verse 5. Let's back up and read the last sentence of verse 4. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. <clears throat> our inheritance, our salvation is kept. The Greek word is, is used for garrisons that guard forts. The same Greek word is used in Matthew 27, 54 to describe those Roman centurions that guarded Jesus as he hung on the cross. It's the same word that is used for how the woman guarded that expensive perfume that she had planned to pour on Jesus' feet and then wipe his feet with her hair in John 12, 7. It is the same word that Paul used 
when he urged the church in Ephesus to do everything in their power to commit themselves to keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in their church, in their congregation. In Ephesians 4.3, your salvation found in Jesus' resurrection from the dead is kept in heaven for you by God himself. I've known people that believe because of something that they did, they had lost their salvation. They had gone too far. And let me tell you, those are some of the most painful conversations I've ever had with people. Because you can't convince them. You don't know what I've done. I've gone too far. I've done too much. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But what I've done is so horrific, I stand outside of the reach of God's grace. Hey, the reason I'm sharing this is because maybe there's somebody here this morning. You're struggling with that very thing. I want you to know something. I want to make something crystal clear from you. Salvation is not yours to lose. It is the free gift of God. Don't you remember? Because of his great mercy, his great mercy can reach the deepest depths with the most glorious forgiveness. And that's just what he's done, not just for you, but for all of us. We are all sinners who have failed miserably and over and over again. But it is not our goodness that saves us. And do you know, that's what separates the Christianity from the other religions of the world. You earn your forgiveness. You earn your salvation. You see those people on Saturday morning, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons going around knocking on doors. They're not doing that because they're bored. They're doing that to try to get in God's good graces. You've got to earn your way to God. And the Bible teaches there is no way for you or me to earn our way to God. What you are not able to reach, he stooped to bring to you and me. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only is our inheritance kept in heaven for you, but you are kept. He's shielding you and me. We are shielded by God's power, the strongest strength and the greatest power in all of creation. Nancy Jobes has written a commentary on 1 Peter. It is phenomenal. Let me read you just a snippet of what she wrote about this. She says, Peter's choice of verbs here suggests that though the heirs may be in peril, nothing less than the power of God himself protects them. Certainly God's power does not exempt Christians from persecution or suffering. Believers, followers of Jesus, may suffer agonizing pain, both physical and psychological, because of the faith. God preserves believers so that they will receive the final inheritance and experience the joy of eschatological salvation. I mentioned to you when we first started that we cannot live without hope. I'm sure that I didn't need to remind you of the importance of hope, but what I've attempted to do in the time that we've been together this morning is to cause us to think deeply about 
the source of our hope. What is your hope rooted in? I mean, for the descendants of Cornelius Vanderbilt, their hope was in the fact that the money left to them by their father, their grandfather, would provide for them the kind of life that they needed to bring them meaning and purpose in life. That hope proved empty. What's the source of your hope? Are you hoping that this year you're going to turn the corner in your marriage? That you're going to get through that rough path and things will be better? Are you hoping that your child will experience a breakthrough and experience freedom from those things that have been keeping your heart and your home in such turmoil? Are you hoping that your new life in America is going to bring you stability and peace? Are you hoping that your anxiety would be quieted and replaced with a peace, a peace that you long for in life? Are you hoping that those you have hurt that they will forgive you and life can get back to normal for you? I want to encourage you to keep hoping and praying. But I also want to ask you a very important question. What if nothing changes? What if this is as good as it's going to get in your life? Can you still join Simon Peter in saying, praise be to the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ? If not, then your hope is a dead hope that will die with your unmet expectations. I was talking to a young lady in the early service who's gone through, I should say going through, just a crazy, crazy, crazy relationship, a divorce. I saw her after the service. She hugged me. She said, I know exactly what you're talking about. If my situation never gets better, I can say praise be to God. Because her hope is not in the, th- I hope this relationship calms down. No, her hope is a living hope based in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Not only does she know that, that Jesus has done something for her in her past, he is impacting her present and he has planned her future. And that's why it's a living hope. I really want you to think about this. What's the source of your hope? If your hope lies outside of what we've been talking about this morning, then your hope will be a dead hope as soon as your expectations are unmet. You need a hope that will endure the disappointments of life. I want you to remember something as we go. The man who wrote this letter, Simon Peter, he was experiencing the weight of a dead hope when he denied that he knew Jesus three times and the next day Jesus died. He would never be able to make things right. He had the weight of that bearing down upon him. His hope was dead. Everything was lost until God raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus sought out Simon Peter and his whole life changed. Edward Clowney writes this, hope was reborn in Peter's heart 
with the sight of his living Lord. Now, Peter writes to praise God for that living hope. The resurrection did much more than restore his master to him. The resurrection crowned the victory of Christ, his victory for Peter, and for all of those to whom he writes. With the resurrection of Jesus and his entrance into glory, a new age has begun. Peter now waits for the day when Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Peter's living hope is Jesus. And let me tell you, that living hope of Jesus' resurrection that transformed Peter's life, it transformed many of the lives there under the Roman Empire and the same transforming power of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is available to transform your life this very morning. Because we do not serve a dead Savior. We serve a living Savior who is present with us this morning. So I want to ask you, as we prepare to leave here, do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? If not, I want to invite you to get up from where you're seated and to come and meet me at the front and to say, Mike, I want to follow Jesus. Listen, you don't have to know the Bible before you are convinced that you need Jesus. The greatest need that you have is knowing that you need Jesus. And it's in knowing that that he will come and meet you at your point of need. And he will begin to take you in your life and he will begin that transformation process that I was talking about. We'll meet this week and we'll learn how to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Just come forward and give me your hand as you give Jesus your heart. And let me say this. I know the biggest barrier, those of you that right now are going, I I need to do that. The biggest barrier stopping you is what those around you will think. Don't let that be the barrier that stops you. And let me me tell you this, most everybody will rejoice at your decision. Meet me at the front. Give me your hand as you give Jesus your heart. And if you're looking for a church home, a place where you can put down roots and grow with a group of people that are seeking to grow in their relationship with the Lord, let me tell you, if you're looking for a church home, you found it. We'll open our doors and our arms and our hearts wide to you and welcome you this very morning. Thanks for listening today. You can watch past sermons on our YouTube channel at Britain Church. We would love to see you on Sunday morning for one of our services at 8.30 or 10.40. Have a great week.